Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update Breast Cancer Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with oncology nurse Dr. Carrie Stricker to talk about her experience with a number of new agents recently approved in breast cancer. And to do this, she presented two patients from her practice with metastatic disease. The first, a 66-year-old woman who was diagnosed six years ago with a node-positive ER-positive HER2-negative tumor. This woman received adjuvant chemotherapy followed by anastrozole for five years. One year after stopping the anastrozole, she was diagnosed with metastases, as described by Dr. Stricker. I'll never forget the day she recurred (laughs) because my collaborating physician was away on surgical leave, having had surgery, and she called into the office with some vague upper abdominal symptoms, you know, nausea, upper GI discomfort, bloating. We hadn't seen her in a couple months in follow-up. And she came into the office, and I saw her in my practice and examined her, and she had significant hepatomegaly. So on exam, I could palpate. I could feel her liver at about six or seven centimeters below the costal margin on the right. And during the five years that she was receiving the anastrozole, how did she do? Did she have any problems with it? She did reasonably well, remembering that when she started it, she was 60 years old, and some of the research in which I've been involved in shows that women who are closer to menopause are those that tend to have the higher incidence of arthralgias and myalgias. She had some, and she certainly had some pre-existing arthritis that you know might have gotten a little bit worse, but she actually did reasonably well. She had a little bit of hair loss at one point, but not significant. Certainly some of the typical hot flashes, vaginal dryness issues that we see in these women on aromatase inhibitors with the severe estrogen deprivation that they induce. But she actually tolerated her hormonal therapy quite well and her chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting as well. The interesting thing about this lady is her weak spot seemed to be mucositis so or her oral mucosa. So she even developed some mucositis during her adjuvant paclitaxel, which we don't see that much of. But at that time, no big issues with myelosuppression, et cetera. And she actually had a reasonable course of adjuvant hormonal therapy. What was her lifestyle like at that time that she was diagnosed with metastatic disease? She was working part-time, and she and her husband traveling a tremendous amount. We used to always catch up about our trips together. I think that time she may have just recently returned from France. And truthfully, this is one of the things that I always talk about when I talk about my metastatic cases. And you talked about the concept of survivorship. A woman like her, who, especially women with hormone receptor positive disease, and even more and more women with HER2 new positive disease, with the market increase in anti-HER2 directed therapies that we now have for those women, you know, you really have to think about these women as survivors that you're approaching from a survivorship perspective, even when they have metastatic disease, because their disease can become so chronic and they can live so long. Although, you know, with all those caveats about the therapies that are available, this still is not a good situation. And you would look at this and say, this lady probably does not have years of life left. As you dealt with her in that initial visit, what did you do to try to help her, to comfort her, to support her? 
So she and her husband were both present, and her husband and I, you know, knew one another extremely well as well. And the interesting thing about her is, remember, this is now essentially her third cancer diagnosis, and she has a BRCA mutation. So this had become a real part of her life, although this obviously is the first time that she was hearing a diagnosis that was not a diagnosis that we could hope to cure. And so the principles that I think have to be held in high regard to help patients as they're dealing with a new diagnosis is to be honest, but hopeful and compassionate. We talk about metastatic breast cancer as being a chronic disease that we cannot cure, but that we can treat for prolonged periods of time. And I talked with her and her husband about you know, what her quality of life could look like from the beginning. So rather than go through every single aspect of this case, what I want to do with these patients that you're going to present is focus on when they got new agents and sort of what happened there. And this lady I see got the drug, the mTOR inhibitor, Everolimus, which is one of a number of drugs that have been approved in breast cancer the last few years. And she received it in combination with an aromatase inhibitor, a different one than the one she received, Eximestane. And I know she got chemo, and as most people with a metastatic disease had, you know, lots of different things happen to her. But I'd like to focus on that point when she actually was begun on that therapy. And just kind of curious how you explained to her what to expect, what was going on. What was the patient education that you did at that point? So when her disease progressed again, and again in the liver, I mean, the one thing about her is that when she progressed, her disease became palpable with hepatomegaly very quickly, but then she usually had a very rapid and robust response, so we could follow her clinically very well. So when she started to have symptoms again of that fullness and bloating while she was on, let's see, prior to starting on the Everolimus and Eximestane, she had been on Navalbine, and when her disease started progressing on that, you know, we scanned her and saw the rise in tumor markers as well. And so we sat down and talked about options. And we always, my collaborating oncologist and I always do this in a very collaborative fashion. So, you know, I'll often even, you know, begin the discussion before he comes in the room to talk to the patient about options. We'll have talked ahead of time about the choices and then land on a regimen together. So in this case, This patient had been on chemotherapies, single-agent chemotherapies, for her prior four regimens, and now we had a new option, which was exciting. She was hormone receptor positive and had, for the prior two and a half years, had no hormonal therapy options, and then boom, the New England Journal article was published, and here we have Everolimus and Eximestane as an option. And so she was thrilled to have the opportunity to go on a medicine that wouldn't mean coming into the office for treatment, that wouldn't mean IV chemotherapy, that would mean her hair would likely grow back, that she could possibly have a more flexible schedule. And so we sat down to talk about that. And one of the key points I always emphasize, though, is people think, okay, oral therapy, less intense, less frequent monitoring. I said to her, you know, this is a new regimen, and there's really only been one reasonably sized trial, and we've got a lot to learn about it. And honestly, she was my first patient on it. And I said, so I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have experience about what to expect with this. I didn't have any patients on the trial at our institution. 
I'll tell you what to expect based on what we learned from that clinical trial. But, you know, we're going to have to see how this goes together and we're going to have to be in close touch. And I said, you know, so exemestane, you're familiar with the aromatase inhibitors from having been on anastrozole before. I expect you to get some mild arthralgias and myalgias and menopausal symptoms again with that. But the new drug, Everolimus, the things that we know to look out for from the clinical trial are rash and mucositis as the predominant side effects. And with you, I said to her, you've always had mucositis with everything we've thrown at you. So we're going to be hyper vigilant about that in you. And we actually, because she had had such wicked mucositis with prior docetaxel and nabpaclitaxel, we actually started her at a reduced dose of the Everolimus 5 milligrams daily. I guess one of the things about Everolimus, particularly because it's used with hormonal therapy and aromatase inhibitors, you said, is that people need to realize that it's maybe a little trickier than the typical hormonal therapy. And I've heard a lot of stories. I'm sure at this point you've used it on other patients with mucositis. What's the typical pattern that you see and what kind of mucositis do you see? So the mucositis that I'll talk to her case and then talk in general, she developed mucositis actually fairly quickly. So within the first two weeks, I don't remember exactly at what time point, and it was all oropharyngeal. So she had ulcerations in her mouth and on her inner lips, and she did actually have some discomfort with swallowing as well. Again, that was her typical presentation, and she did ultimately you know, get to a grade two and then it got better. So actually, as she persisted on the five milligram dose, it got better. And we were able to then increase her to five alternating with 10. And ultimately, she got all the way up to 10. So with supportive therapies such as, you know, oral rinses, you know, avoiding hot and spicy foods and good mouth care, all that good stuff, topical analgesics, she was able to manage it. It did improve over time. It never entirely went away. So she had a few ulcerations on her lip that would come and go. But it it was manageable. And that is actually not inconsistent with my, in terms of the time course and the reversibility to some degree, that's not inconsistent with my overall experience. Yeah, I guess what I've been hearing is that just as you say, that a lot of patients do have this occur, but most are able to continue with the drug, you know, stopping them for a while, changing the dose. What about local preparations? I've heard about mouthwashes with corticosteroids. Do you use those? So there's kind of the whole kitchen sink of mouthwashes available, right? So it depends on what your goal is. I mean, I always start people off prophylactically with good oral care instruction. So, you know, they should be rinsing their mouth with either, I mean, honestly, the studies have never shown one particular agent to be better than the next. I mean, you can do salt and soda or salt or even, you know, if they're not going to do anything else, I tell them just to rinse their mouth out with tap water after each meal and make sure they brush with a soft toothbrush. Once you get into the domain of where you actually have ulcerations and pain, I don't have a single agent that I strongly prefer. It really depends on what the presentation is. Ulceries, a phenol mouth rinse, you know, is a rinse, a swish and spit that gets good coverage throughout the oral mucosa. I tend to not do magic mouthwash anymore. Those preparations of lidocaine mixed in with Benadryl and Nystatin and other things because, you know, that's expensive to compound and it's never been shown to be better than any other particular single agent. There's now you have the gel clay 
flares and the other sorts of sort of mucoadherent preparations for people who have very painful mouth sores. They can provide a coverage and make eating more tolerable. So I've not particularly used hydrocortisone rinses, but I certainly do go through the whole range of options. The other class of rinses, preparations that I'll use prophylactically are the cafesol, nutrisol, the oral electrolyte rinses that have been shown if you do them starting at the beginning of therapy may reduce the onset of mucositis. And so for folks who, you know, have developed in prior cycles mucositis, I'll often start that at the beginning of the next cycle. And I see that this lady also had a problem with rash. Yes. So she, it was fascinating to me because it was a rash that looked entirely different than the rash I had seen with other, you know, biologics such as lapatinib. And it may have even be as early as a week into her treatment. She comes in with her entire lower extremities, thighs, calves, covered in these annular lesions, so ring-like lesions that looked like tinea. It looked like ringworm. She had these scaly, raised erythematous kind of, yeah, scaly lesions all over her lower extremities that were itchy and bothersome. And I had never seen a presentation like that before related to an anti-neoplastic therapy. So, you know, we actually tackled that quite simply with hydrocortisone cream over the counter initially. And within a week, it was gone and never came back. So I'm curious then, once you sort of tried to deal with the mucositis, adjusting the dose, you know, using the corticosteroids for the skin rash, and she kind of plateaued out in terms of toxicity, what was her quality of life like? And how did she compare it? She'd been on all kinds of hormones. She's been on all kinds of chemo. Where did this fit in in terms of sort of quality of life? I think she would characterize it as somewhere in between the straightforward hormonal therapy and chemotherapy. And there's not a straight answer as to why she would say that. It's not just because of toxicity. It was also because of lifestyle, you know, not needing to come in for the treatments. But interestingly, the one thing I haven't mentioned yet, and now I'm really only remembering now as I think through her case, is she actually felt fairly fatigued on this regimen. And that was probably the one thing that prevented her. I mean, the mucositis she could manage, the rash went away, the mucositis got better with time, but she really felt, she frankly just felt pooped on this. She felt tired on this regimen, not the same level of energy. Hard to say, you know, to what degree that was the regimen itself or the fact that her disease wasn't responding, you know, but she did feel quite fatigued. So somewhere in between kind of straightforward hormonal therapy and IV chemotherapy. I'm curious what your experience has been at this point with Everolimus. One of the other things that's been observed very rarely, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, is pneumonitis. Yes, I knew you were going to say that. Yep. Yeah, pneumonitis is not, thankfully, something that I've had clinical experience with. But you reminded me that when we met with her initially to talk about the therapy, you know, that was a side effect that we spent a lot of time on because of how serious it is. Because, of course, you can get when patients come to some sort of an equilibrium on their therapy, you can get a little complacent about that there could be a serious toxicity, right? And especially as time moves on and you're seeing them less. So we really did very detailed education to her about what signs and symptoms of pneumonitis would be in terms of cough, shortness of breath that could be subtle initially and made sure she knew to call us with any of those signs and checked in on those signs and symptoms, whether they were present anytime she came in. 
So I want to also get into the issue of new agents and HER2 positive disease. And uh, I think your 60-year-old lady who got TDM1 looks interesting. Can you talk a little bit about how she first presented back in 2009? So these are the cases that I find the most challenging when women present with de novo metastatic disease. So they're initially diagnosed with a disease that is incurable. And, you know, having a specialty of breast cancer for the past over a decade now, that is not the majority of our cases, right? You know, it's about 5%, I think, that are diagnosed with stage four disease at presentation. So we're used to this sort of scenario where, you know, even women who are diagnosed with locally advanced disease or a high risk for recurrence tumor, there's still, you know, you have that drive in the beginning of, okay, we're going to give you the best therapy possible. And really the goal is cure, avoidance of recurrence. And here you have a woman who, you know, at the time of diagnosis was 56 years old, quite young in my opinion, and, you know, came in with a palpable breast mass and changes in her breast consistent with inflammatory breast cancer, sort of that pote orange, the bright red skin effect, diagnosed by core biopsy, your typical pathologic presentation of the disease with poorly differentiated tumor cells. She had very little hormone receptor positivity, and she was her 2 new positive, and she had an axillary node that was enlarged. So, you know, then you're immediately really into crisis mode with these folks who not only Well, she went right on from there to get scans because of her locally advanced disease, and that's when it was found that she had extensive disease in the liver, the peritoneum, and bone. So those patients really are in crisis mode. They not only are diagnosed with cancer and breast cancer, but diagnosed with an incurable form of it and one that's looking rather aggressive. And the urgency to treat is right there, right from the beginning. You want to get chemotherapy started or whatever the therapy is. And in this case, it needed to be chemotherapy for several reasons, including the aggressive presentation, you need to get that going immediately. Well, also, it looks like her ER was not particularly high, just 5%, no. PR zero, exactly. but she was HER2 positive. Correct. Yep. And what was her lifestyle like at that point? Was she working? What was going on? Yeah, this was a woman who was working and, you know, very active at work. So at that time of diagnosis, was she having any symptoms? It sounds like she had a lot of metastatic disease. Was she having any symptoms from that? Yeah, she definitely had abdominal pelvic symptoms. So, and she did have some bone pain in the spine, but her disease in the bones was less extensive. You know, she had more vague symptoms. She was not somebody who presented with hepatomegaly. So she didn't have any profound abdominal pelvic or GI symptoms, just sort of vague with, I think, probably because of the peritoneal involvement, sort of vague bowel changes, bloating sensations, that sort of thing. You know, really what brought the disease to the attention of herself and then her medical team were the changes in the breast. And I don't remember exactly how long her prior mammogram had been, but she was not somebody who had neglected her medical care. So if this was not an interval breast cancer from her, you know, last prior annual, you know, within the past year, nine months or so, it was not much beyond a year that she had had a mammogram. She is somebody who was proactive about her own health care. It's just as we know, there are these kinds of breast cancer, particularly inflammatory, poorly differentiated that pop up quickly. And, you know, it's interesting to reflect back that, you know, she got what was typical therapy, I guess, for 2010, really up until a couple of years ago, paclitaxel, trastuzumab, responds to that. 
And she got second line therapy that was pretty typical in 2012, which was capecitabine and lapatinib. So she did pretty well with those therapies. And that brought us up to, I guess, very recently. But just to reflect back on what's been going on with her two positive disease, I guess I can say that three years later, if she were to present today, she would have gotten different first and second line therapy. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating how much change there's been and even, you know, with the approvals, even just the past six months and how that has been so standard changing. So maybe we can, before we go on to what happened in terms of the last couple of months, maybe just reflect back on what is going on in terms of management of HER2 positive disease in the first line setting. And you had another patient who got this treatment. We're seeing patients getting attacking trastuzumab and pertuzumab. And often we're seeing patients getting in the second line trastuzumab emtansine, TDM1, which she actually ended up getting. But just reflecting back on these two new therapies, I'm curious about what your experience has been, both in terms of efficacy as well as tolerability. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So obviously with both of them, and particularly with TDM1, only having just been approved now February of this year, you know, with that agent, we did have it in clinical trials at my place of work at University of Pennsylvania as well. So we had a little bit of experience with that drug before it was even approved. I'll address tolerability first. The one that's been a bit more challenging from a tolerability perspective has been the pertuzumab, trastuzumab, docetaxel combination. And you've got a triplet of agents and you have a not walk in the park chemotherapy as part of that triplet of agents. However, that being said, you know, it certainly is more toxic in terms of particular side effects such as, you know, the diarrhea, there's more incidence of rash. The thing that interestingly we deal even more so with is the myelosuppression, which is really tied more to the docetaxel. So that one requires a bit more sophistication in managing, but the other interesting thing about it is, you know, after... I think that in this particular case, you know, after the six courses and stable disease on this triplet, then she was able to move on to the doublet of pertuzumab and trastuzumab alone. And that's really nice. I mean, we're now, you know, and have been, I think, an anti-HER2 for a while in a paradigm now where you, you know, you can consider giving people essentially holidays from chemotherapy because they have their targeted therapy to help maintain them. And then that allows for a better quality of life. I've certainly been impressed with this triplet regimen with the kinds of responses we're seeing. I mean, these are why we do studies, right? I mean, it's so hard to say from my cadre of patients, you know, do I observe at this point a meaningful difference between that triplet versus the traditional trastuzumab paclitaxel? I mean, we're not far enough out. These are, you know, biased sets of cases of patients. That's why we do studies. But I've certainly been impressed with the responses. And while with that regimen, I think there's more adjustment and fine-tuning of that triplet up front with dose modifications, symptom management interventions, it's still quite a tolerable regimen for most folks and certainly was for the young woman who in our practice received that. And what about TDM1? What's been your experience there in terms of side effects and tolerability? So TDM1, you know, the case that I brought to your attention was the first infusion reaction case that we had seen. But otherwise, we're finding this 
and I personally didn't have any of the patients on the TDM1 trial during the time period we had it open at Penn, but our collective experience with TDM1 clinically, and I talked to four or five of my colleagues about this before today, has been very favorable in terms of the tolerability profile. So this is definitely not only a go-to agent because of its efficacy data, but also its tolerability data. One of the things that's interesting is even though there is a chemotherapeutic component to this, you know, that's bound to the antibody, you know, from what I see in the trials and what I hear from talking to clinicians, you don't see chemotherapy type problems such as alopecia. Is that your experience? Absolutely. And then she, this 60-year-old woman we were talking about, she's somebody who had, you know, a lot of prior agents that can cause neuropathy. And she, in fact, presently has neuropathy and is on treatment for that, on pain medication, neuroleptics for that. But we've, to date, not seen that progress on this, even though you have an antimicrotubule agent that's part of the makeup of the TDM1. We haven't seen, and I think it's because of that targeted mechanism, that you don't really see the same degree of systemic side effects that you would with an antimicrotubule agent that's delivered systemically and not bound. Now, I see that once she was on the capecitabine lipatinib, she then developed brain metastasis. Can you talk about what happened there? Yeah, so she was at that point when she first started developing symptoms about eight to nine months into her lipatinib capecitabine regimen when she started having subtle cerebellar symptoms, you know, mild gait ataxia. Etc. And this is, you know, a 60-year-old woman again who had no prior incidence of that. So obviously, you go right to imaging. And she had a new cerebellar metastasis. It's interesting too, because of course, you know, one of the benefits of lipatinib is, of course, that there is some penetration through the blood-brain barrier. Yet she still did develop a metastasis on that treatment. And so she, at that point, obviously needed to be moved off. And that's when she started the TDM one. Well, also, I see that she had the metastatic lesion in the brain removed neurosurgically. How did she tolerate that? She tolerated that very well. And as you know, that's, you know, resection isn't always our first-line approach for brain metastases. But in this case, she had an isolated metastasis, and it was very amenable to resection. And she was symptomatic from it. So that's what she proceeded with, with following gamma knife treatment to the tumor bed, really in hopes of prolonged local disease control in that area. So she gets started on TDM1, and how did she do? Well, so her first infusion, she had rigors. So she did have an infusion reaction, which we hadn't seen before in our clinic experience. I haven't gone back to ask about the folks on the trial, but it was very manageable. She received hydrocortisone. She didn't have any real hypotension or hemodynamic instability. The hydrocortisone resolved the rigors a bit, and then some Tylenol and Benadryl further, a little bit more hydrocortisone. And, you know, she felt flu-like or so at home for the next couple of days. And then she's actually set to come in later this week. So, We'll keep you posted to how she does. So a couple of sort of, quote, paper toxicities with TDM1 are lowering of platelet counts and abnormal liver function tests. What do we know about that and what happened with her in that regard? 
Yeah, so she started out with robust blood counts. And again, you know, she didn't even receive a full first infusion. So we've really, in her particular case, not had the opportunity yet to see what kind of effect she might have on her blood counts or LFT abnormalities. But in these folks, we monitor those parameters closely, particularly in the first couple of treatments. So we'll bring them back in for interval lab work in the weeks following their initial treatments and then certainly do liver function testing every time they come in thereafter. The other thing that we haven't talked about with all these therapies, of course, are the cardiovascular toxicities of these novel anti-HER2-directed therapies, which, you know, overall, as you know, have been quite reassuring, especially when taken in comparison with what we know about trastuzumab, which also is quite well tolerated and mostly with reversible cardiotoxicity overall, but we see that even more so the case with these newer agents. And we still as consistent with the package insert, we do do regular monitoring of their ejection fraction. And I think it was only in the trials, like somewhere on order of 1% to 2% with TDM1 of any clinically significant cardiotoxicity. So those have not borne out to be significant issues with these new drugs, although that, again, shouldn't put one in a scenario where you're not being attentive to and monitoring for.